Hi, this is Ibarian X, and welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. A week or so ago, I had the opportunity to go to a, a preview of a new exhibit here in Los Angeles. It's called War Slash Photography, and it's an exhibit that is being shown at the Annenberg Space of Photography in West Los Angeles. And it is a collection of photographs that document war, conflict, ranging back from World War II to our current age. And it is an amazing collection of work from some of the world's best photographers. The remarkable thing about the exhibit is that it shows the kinds of images you would expect for a photo show that revolves around war. But it also gives you glimpses into some of the less obvious things that occur not only in the midst of battle, but the things that happen back home with the people that are left behind. It's an amazing body of work, and I have to commend the space and all the people who work on this show because it's something that shouldn't be missed. I know that the topic of of war and conflict isn't something that people often want to go run off and see for an exhibit of photography, but if you have the opportunity, if you live here in Los Angeles or if you're going to be visiting during the time of the exhibit, you don't want to miss it. You really get a sense of the power of photography, and you get to learn a lot about the people who go out there on a daily basis with a camera, with bullets flying, with people screaming, with with just chaos all around them, and they make the photographs that end up in our newspapers, in our magazines, and on blogs and websites. These images are important, and the people who make these photographs are exceptional people. And today's guest is is a shining example of that. Alexandra Vakin has been a photojournalist for several decades now, and even though she's primarily known as a conflict photographer, her photography her photography is more about storytelling and telling the story of people who are struggling for freedom in one way or another, regardless of one's politics, regardless of what side someone may fall in. Her camera has shown the price that's paid by so many people in as they struggle to create of a life, not only for themselves, for, for their family. And when you take a look at her photographs and when you hear her story, you realize how complicated a thing it actually is to be able to do that effectively. Having a camera and just being thrown in the midst of a conflict is not enough. It requires much more in terms of tenacity, respect, an underlying desire to do something really exceptional with a camera. And I have to say that she succeeded in, in so many ways, which is why... I'm really pleased to share our conversation with you. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Alexandra Avakian. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace. As you might have heard from the previous episode, I finally designed a website. It's been two years in coming and Squarespace made it incredibly easy for me to do it. And when I and when I finally got it done, I was amazed that I waited as long as I did to make it happen because they made it so easy for me. And it's, and it's going to be the same for you. I, I guarantee it. It's because of these beautiful templates, which are 100% drag and drop. 
and you can customize it. So you're not just locked into this one template that everyone everyone has. You can you can customize the color, the fonts, all these different things. And all you need to do is just add blocks, blocks of photos, videos, text, social media content, and you get to preview the layout as as you go. And nothing, nothing could be easier. And they're all so exceptionally designed. These these templates are are award-winning designs and they create this really sophisticated, beautiful, modern web style that really showcases your photograph, regardless of whether you're a photojournalist, a nature photographer, or a portrait photographer, you're gonna find something that really showcases your work. And it's an easy thing for you to go out and try it yourself and find out whether or not it works for you. You can see what I've done so far by visiting ibarianx.net, but why don't you try it with your own photography? And to do that, there's a free trial available. Just go to squarespace.com forward slash candid frame. Sign up for a free account. There's no credit card needed. And try it out and just start building your website today. Believe me, it'll be faster and easier than you can imagine. Then if you decide to purchase it, just use the offer code CANDIDFRAME4 and get 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, including monthly and annual plans. That's squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME4. Everything you need to create an exceptional website. Alexandra, welcome to the Candid Frame. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to to talk to you, uh, having looked at your work and having seen having seen this this wonderful exhibit. Uh, your story is a is a really a, a fascinating one, and one of the places that I wanted to start is that I know that your your father was a, a filmmaker. He was a director. He was an editor. And it was literally on his knee that you learned the role of story, how to tell a story Absolutely. visually. And it seems that even though you're often recognized as a conflict photographer, most of your work revolves around your desire to tell stories. So why, why don't you tell us about what you got from your father ended up being so important to what has become your life's work? My father started talking to me about taking pictures when I was eight or nine years old. And he used to sit me down with Life magazine and dissect photo essays and talk about why one picture was run small, one large, what's an opener, what's an ender, and really how to tell a story. And these were, of course, great photo essays. He was a great editor as well as a, a director. And in the cutting room, he used to give me blank strips of film and have me draw stories for him and run it through the moviola. Mm -hmm. He also let me cut film. He would tell me why a scene had to be cut in a certain place and why it fit with another piece of film and another, you know, point of view. So, and I grew up on movie sets and in the theater. Uh, my stepfather is a, a director as well. He's a theater and movie director. And he came into the picture a little later. My mother's an actress and a writer, wonderful, deep actress. So my father, I should say their names, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they'd be right, happy. Right, right, right. So my father, he died, but his name was Aram Avakian. And my stepfather is John Hancock. And my mother is Dorothy Tristan. It's sort of ironic that you come from a family of storytellers, that the story of your grandparents' journey and 
the the challenges that, that they faced under Stalin and and elsewhere were sort of stories that were underneath the radar that they weren't told, and they they were really what sort of propelled you into the career that you have. Have you always thought it ironic the fact that here is a family that's so big into storytelling, but here is probably one of the more important stories of your family, and it was not really talked about? Absolutely. And it was that, you know, I'm half Armenian and my grandmother and my grandfather didn't want their grandchildren to grow up thinking about the horrors that they had fled, like the Armenian genocide, like Stalin's great terror. You know, my grandmother lost a quarter of her family under Stalin. I mean, a quarter of my entire family, Mm. her whole family disappeared under Stalin. So, yes, you you know, we got little intimations of uh, a frightening family past. But we we also had a lot of pride, you know, in our grandparents making it here. I did discover around the time I was I went back east to college. I did, you know, start to hear about the stories from my father. What actually happened? Mm. So, what led you to want to use the still camera to explore similar stories that other people were experiencing around the world. Your father was a filmmaker. Why not go into film? What was the interest in in the still photograph that you felt that that was a more effective way of exploring those and telling those stories? Well, you know, my father was still working with me, editing my photographs. And uh, we had a very deep working relationship around, around my work. So it was just something that he kept encouraging me to do. And it was my... It's my childhood hobby. Like some kids like to play basketball. You know, I was a young photographer and I went to Crossroads here in in LA and that was where I took my first formal photography class. You know, I just fell in love with the still image. You know, I fell in love with it and its ability to distill a moment in, in time. I started in New York with very tough stories while I was still in college for Christmas vacation. I sent myself to the Dominican Republic to photograph Haitian slave labor in the the sugar fields. And that was very much, you know, hiding out in the homes of liberation theologists, priests, and things like this. I guess that it came out of a kind of a desire to engage in the world. From living in Malibu and, and also New York, my mother lived in Malibu with my stepfather. My father was a New York guy and lived in New York. Uh, I had a privileged upbringing. And I just, I basically threw it off for a decade to pursue conflict stories. Uh, from 86 to 96, I hardly came home. Yeah. Your first foray into that was in Haiti. Mm-hmm. In 86, when Jean-Claude Duvalier fled. So tell me about that first experience, because there's, there's no training, there's no handbook for this. If you're interested in conflict photography, the only choice is to get a ticket, get a camera, and just sort of jump in. Exactly. So tell me about what it was like, not just what you saw, but how you negotiated not only the access, but what it felt like to be there, mm-hmm. and really to being, being completely green in terms of the process of being in a place where you could really get hurt. Well, I was 26, I had been reading about Haiti for many years. I had been in my sleep. I would dream about being in a foreign capital that was burning with riots and fires, you know, gunshots. 
And in my dreams, I had this film in my eyes, not film, but, you know, goop in my eyes, and I couldn't see to take a photograph. And these dreams were recurrent. They just, I kept having them until I arrived in Haiti. And I felt, at first I was terrified, terrified. I, I was just terrified of the violence that I knew was going on there. But as soon as I arrived, I felt like I was home. I felt I was where I should be. I think because I had a deep sort of you know, empathy for these people after having read about them, their history, um, you know, their folk tales, listened to their music, and I felt very at ease in that place. And I spent seven months there. Oh, it was that long? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I mean, the first trip was three months, and then I kept going back. Well, that's very different from what most photojournalists who are working for a magazine, they're in right. for a short period of time, and then they're, they're out. Right. So why the choice to be there that long, and what did it provide you in terms of the stories that you wanted to tell that being there for a shorter duration of time would not have allowed you to? Well, when you arrive and there's joy and there's violence, joy that Jean-Claude Duvalier left, and there then also violence, you know, the army against the people and the Makuts against the people, the people against the Makuts. You know, that is one thing. But when you stay longer, you get to the culture and you get to the daily life and the reasons why things happen, whether they be human rights issues or the economy of a country. So you get to go on deeper levels into the society. And that, to me, is so fascinating. What did you learn during that time that helped inform what you did subsequently? when you were in Lebanon or you were in Iran and you were in all these other conflict areas where you may not have had the liberty of being able to stay for seven months, but you still wanted to tell a particular, a particular story. Mm -hmm. What did you learn from that, basically that training ground that helped you to really be very effective in terms of what you were doing with the camera and what you were trying to say with it? Well, one of the things is, of course, mistakes. You make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember jumping on the back of, this guy's motorcycle, Haitian guy, and he took me around, and, you know, he was really nice, and <laughs> he was taking risks, and he did this just because, you know, he just took me, and, you know, but I learned later that you need to be with another photojournalist when you're in riot situations. You know, logistical things about how not to get shot at. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, or how not to get hit if you know and get good pictures at the same time that's practice but not everyone can do it because it takes a certain amount of cool you know you have to mm. have a certain amount of i don't know equilibrium in really horrible situations in the midst of your adrenaline being up right you have to still find some way of being calm in terms of your thought process so you don't do something impulsive that could be a danger to yourself or anyone else you're with Right, and so you can compose something, a photograph, that speaks to people because it's a lot of things happening at once. Mm -hmm. you know, it's your aesthetic, your own personal aesthetic, but it's also these people in front of you. It's really quite collaborative in a sense. These people in front of you, they know you're there and they know that you're documenting their suffering. And they, I have found with civilians, for the most part, they get it. 
Mm. It's the sides that fight each other, you know, one side or another that might really not want you there and really try to hurt you. Yeah. The sort of iconic figure of the photojournalist that a lot of people think of is like Robert Kappa. And they think of him being just alone in the right. midst of that. You you make a great point that it's the people that you're working with, either right. the other photojournalists mm-hmm. or the fixer or mm-hmm. a driver. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about those relationships and why they're absolutely crucial. You know, the fixer is very often a journalist in his own right, a guy from that country or a woman. They're key in so many ways. And your relationship with them is very important. And when I find one, that I get along with, I I tend to stick with that person trip after trip after trip or year after year driver. You know, I found a driver in Moscow by chance and he stayed with me for two years. He was a taxi driver. You know, especially when you live in a place, like I lived in Gaza for two years, I had the same driver and he was wonderful. They take chances for you. Mm. They risk their lives. You know, you worry about them. (laughs) You know, that's part of it. It's a relationship. One of the questions I, I, I wonder about when it comes to the photography that, that conflict photographers make, it's part of it is that you're making an image in order to make a, make a story. But some of the most striking and effective photographs are beautiful photographs, for, for lack of a better word. And I'm always wondering in terms of considering the stresses that you're going through in making the image, how you strike that balance between making a a good document of a moment, of an event, but also with the artist in you that wants to make an aesthetically good photograph because those aesthetics of lighting, composition, all of those things, if you have those, it can draw someone and hold their attention. But considering all the craziness that can be happening in a moment, how conscious of that are you? Or is it just instinctual and you just hope that you are able to use whatever skills you have as a photographer to make all those things gel? Well, I think it becomes instinct. You hopefully, and this is why I tell students all the time, be self-critical. Edit, edit, edit. Don't throw anything away. Because I think that, okay, you can arrive at a scene and shoot two rolls of film. And there'll be one image in there that has everything you really want which is, for example, in my case, I love complexity in chaos. So things coming in from the left and the right and the top and the bottom, but everything working as if it's a piece of music. For me, it has to have those things. But then you need to combine it with something very, very still, like the girl with the dove that's Mm -hmm. outside Beautiful photograph. You know, she's super still. I think that it's a combination of things that are meaningful to you, where you feel that you caught something in that person or that scene that's incredibly important. And you have to know why you're there. You really have to know why you're there because the risks are high. Yeah. In watching the video that they have here, one of the things that um, struck me was how people who go out and photograph these things on a regular basis cope emotionally. Joie. He's interviewed here, mm-hmm. and I've been reading interviews with him. And even though he lost his legs and experienced some horrendous injuries, part of him wants to go back out there. You know, I've talked to other people who have done this kind of work, and, you know, they, they need counseling. And others have talked about the fact that the fact that you have other journalists who know what you've gone through. Mm-hmm. Somehow that allows them to sort of 
process and deal with what they've witnessed and what they've experienced. And I'm, if it's not too personal, I wonder how it is that with all the things that you've witnessed, all the things that you've seen, um, how have you dealt with it so that you don't suffer like so many of the soldiers that are coming back now who just don't have any resources available to them to be able to reintegrate themselves and, and deal with all the stuff that they've, they've experienced? Great question. You know, so whereas in the 80s before I went to Haiti, I dreamt at night about getting in to those situations. By the time 1996 came around, 10 years later, I was dreaming, not at night, but in real life, about how to get out. And I kept getting the assignments. I needed to rip out the desire to keep doing this because it was my life, but it wasn't good for my life Mm -hmm. at a certain point. And there were really too many funerals and so much sadness. And that goes through you. I mean, it it, it becomes a part of you, and you never forget. For me, at least, there's no forgetting. I think that, you know, I have to say, I recently found a photograph just by going through my stuff that I had put out of my mind. It was just a chilling photograph of a, a dead baby in a pile of garbage in a pauper's graveyard. And I just said to myself, how could I have forgotten this? But clearly, I, 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 I had to. Other things I can't, I, you know, I can't forget. You know, when you see a child die in front of you, you it's, I mean, mm-hmm. there's just no way. And, and so I think that at that time, it was helpful to have friends, obviously, who have been through it. And we talked endlessly about the things we'd seen that day or sometimes we wouldn't talk about it but there was always that understanding that there was this community that you weren't alone but I did I did manage to change my life and now I won't get on a plane to go to open conflict but I do photograph people who have been affected by war or post-revolutionary societies how are they trying to put it together are they failing or succeeding and refugees there are ways to still be meaningful have meaningful work in these circumstances without actually putting yourself in the middle of a battle yeah and windows of the soul your book that you came out i think last year sort of a testament to that exploration of not only uh, the lives of muslims in a variety of different countries mm-hmm. but uh, to a large part their pursuit for freedom right and how the, the struggle for that at mm-hmm. varying different stages and degrees impacts them, not just in the streets when they're riding or they're fighting, but right. how it just impacts their, their day-to-day. Mm-hmm. Why was that so important for you to do it? Because some, some photojournalists, once they're done with it, they're done with it. Right. They don't want to explore any other facets of it. They go into something else completely different. Some don't even just completely drop out of photography entirely. So right. why... You know, what was your thought process in terms of saying, I want to keep shooting, but this is how I want to use my camera now as opposed to how I've been doing for the last 10 years? When the first Intifada broke out, my family was making a movie in Israel, and my, my stepfather and my mother, and so they invited me, and the Intifada had broken out. I didn't even see them, <laughs> practically. I mean, very rarely. I, for four months, I, I had my first assignment for Time magazine, and I just 
I just went with it. And I felt very at home again, again, this feeling of being at home in that place. And it was horribly violent, but it was the Middle East. And I do have Middle Eastern roots on my father's side, Armenians from Iran. I just became fascinated with that part of the world. And even when I was based in Moscow covering the end of the former Soviet Union, I still kept returning to the Arab world in particular, as well as Iran. I'm not finished now. I still go. And I still find it aesthetic and the people expressive. Does that begin to answer no, the yeah. question? But there was another part. Well, one of the things that you, that you do with the, you've mentioned uh, in previous interviews, was that you show more than just writing and prayer. Right. You know, because at least in the Western world, the limited views that we have of the Muslims with this big umbrella in which we label all these Muslims, even though there's as much diversity there as there is with Christians. Right. We're very limited. Even though there are so many photographs being made, the kind of images that are finding their way in newspapers and so on, so on and so forth are fairly finite. Your work is sort of painting a much more detailed, you're painting with a more detailed brush to reveal that. that. Thank you. So I'm interested in sort of hearing how the process of exploring that without the having to deal with conflict is for you as, a, as, a, as an artist, as a mm. photographer. First of all, it's a very aesthetic, to me, aesthetic part of the world. I love their eyes. Their eyes are incredibly expressive in that part of the world. And they say a lot with their eyes. And I actually find that it's funny because you can never arrange access to something Mm -hmm. on the phone from here. You have to be there. You have to pitch it. I had to, when I, the first time I met Yasser Arafat at one in the morning or two in the morning in Tunis, I had to sit there and pitch the New York Times Magazine story to him. And they decide right then and there. Uh, Same with Hezbollah. Well, Hezbollah told me no, and I kept hanging in there and kept coming back. And I also think that from the Armenian side of me, well, a million Armenians were killed in a Muslim country, but it really had nothing to do with Islam. You know, Armenians were embraced by Syria, by Iraq, by um, Palestinians, by the Lebanese, Uh, by the Iranians, they were embraced after that. And so, in a way, it's personally getting over that hump, for lack of a better word. (laughs) In some Armenian families, not mine, thank goodness, there's a kind of a resistance to Muslim culture Mm -hmm. because of the history, but not for me. And I feel very much at home there, and I think that people feel that. When they feel that you're no threat, no matter who they are, they might be very dangerous people, like Hezbollah, for example. Yeah. When they feel that you're, you're just there and not coming with a lot of baggage, I think that it helps. Well, Yasser Arafat described you as being a little dictator. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I thought that was very funny. And he I, said, you are a dictator. And that speaks to sort of your tenacity to get what you want. And, and I think that that's an important part of any photographer who who decides to document the kind of work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. So talk about about that, because sometimes it's important to push, but sometimes it's important to just, like, step back. Absolutely. And that's very instinctual. So 
as much as you've learned about photography over your, over the years, mm-hmm. what have you learned about that art mm-hmm. of negotiating, about pushing, knowing not to push, right. how to sort of do whatever you need to do so that you can do what you want with the camera? You know, I think that you have to mix all of those approaches when you're dealing with other human beings, no matter what, whether it's your family or people you're photographing. There were times, for example, with Arafat, there were times when I knew I had to get out of the room because he would give me this look. And I knew that he was furious about something, maybe not about me, but that I needed to get away from him. Mm -hmm. You know, I worked around him for about six years. I traveled on his private planes. And, you know, I was there in Oslo when he got the Peace Prize with uh, Yitzhak Rabin. And I was with him in Washington when he signed the Peace Accords. So many things. But there were other times I had to push. I mean, when he first came out of exile back to Gaza Mm -hmm. in 1994, I was working for Time magazine. I needed the exclusive photograph of Yasser Arafat on his first day. The press had been all over him all day. So what I did was I rented a hotel room that had a view of his office from the bathroom, actually. And I saw all these other journalists, friends of mine, who were just waiting there for some kind of special access. And I knew that if I showed up, that they'd push their way in behind me. Mm. So I took a shower and I watched them one by one go away. Because this had happened before, you see. When I showed up at Arafat's office, I had people chasing me in cars and things like that because they wanted in on my tail. Mm. And so, but I had a job to do for Time Magazine. And that meant it had to be exclusive. So I took my shower. I watched them go one by one away. And then I went down and in and up to Arafat. So, but the problem was I wanted him on the balcony because he had all these supporters. And he had been waving to them, and they were still waiting for him to come again and wave some more. But the sun was dropping, dropping, dropping. (laughs) And it was killing me. I said, I need your picture in the natural light. He said, you sit and eat watermelon. (laughs) (laughs) I want you to sit right now, eat watermelon. No pictures before watermelon. This is how he was, you know. But I really pushed him, and I got the picture. <laughs> I ate the watermelon, and I got the picture. <laughs> so that's a long sort of um, demonstration. But. That's a good story. <laughs> well, there, there's one point where you were telling a story of the Palestinians, and you were staying in the in their community, but you also wanted to go to the occupied territory. And so you, you've talked about the fact that there you had to let each side know right. what you were doing. And later on when you were in Lebanon, uh, you were with Hezbollah, mm-hmm. but there you were just strictly with them right. because you didn't want any sort of anyone sort of getting the wrong idea. Two different approaches in two very different situations. Right. Talk about what the issue is in both because they, they both have similar issues mm-hmm. and what considerations you have to make and why you make the choices that you make mm-hmm. in order to be able to get the photographs. Every single country in the Middle East is is very, very different. Uh, with a different government, a different set of issues, and so forth. So you really have to think about your approach, I, I believe. Think very, very, very carefully and plan your approach. In Gaza, for example, crossing to the settlements, Israeli settlements, was dangerous because Palestinians were attacking Israeli cars. So if you were in an Israeli car, that was extremely dangerous. 
if you were in a Palestinian car, you could be taken as a threat when you approached the checkpoint. It was dicey. And the way I dealt with that was to tell, first of all, tell my Palestinian uh, neighbors what I was doing because I didn't want, for example, a bricklayer in the Israeli settlement and a Palestinian bricklayer to see me and start a rumor that I was on the Israeli settlement hanging out with Israeli settlers. They had to know on the Palestinian side that I was working there so that they would understand. That was key to my safety in Gaza. On the Israeli side, the Israeli army and the Israeli government knew I was living in Gaza on the Palestinian side. That was also incredibly important. I believe in openness as much as possible. There are times when you have to enter a place, like Syria, for example, where you have to sneak around if, if you're doing a story that the government doesn't want you to do. Okay, But I believe, for the most part, in openness. So with Hezbollah, you know, I went straight for them, and I stayed away from the party life, and... You know, because a lot of journalists go there. It's a lot of fun. You know, I have a lot of Lebanese friends on the party side. <laughs> and, you know, they know how to have a good time. But I basically didn't see anybody, and I stayed on the edge of Hezbollah's neighborhood so that they wouldn't uh, think that I was just messing around. Mm. I wanted them to know and to feel the pressure, even, of my being there for them. You know, earlier, I, m- I may mention of the fact when you went to Haiti that you were all green. Yeah, And part of going out into these different conflict areas is that you have these young photographers that come in right. that just sort of jump in. Right. How do you and your sort of compatriots who have been doing this and for a while sort of see these, these guys, and, and now increasingly a lot of women, yeah. go out there, all of a sudden show up with their, with their cannons and their Nikons? What's that like from your perspective now that you're – you see them because increasingly there there are a lot of people who can make that choice and and often do right well they learn very quickly not to step in front of if if there's something happening if it's a news event and there are a lot of photographers there and they're all seasoned people these photographers i'm thinking of for example if a kid steps out in front of them they will literally grab them by the collar and pull them back and they learn really fast and um, just as I did. And also ethics and how you help your colleagues. And that's really key. I mean, I was working side by side with the Turnley brothers for years, and in particular Peter. Mm-hmm. And I was for Time and he was for Newsweek. And so we were competition, but we were friends. And when it came down to it, we helped each other if we needed to. For example, we were all rounded up and arrested once in Bethlehem, and they let me go first after the Israeli soldiers let me go first. It was rough, though, <laughs> before then. But Peter slipped me his film, and I brought it to the Newsweek Bureau. So these things are really, really important to stress with young people. They need to be good to each other. Mm. Well, one of the questions that often comes up for people who, on occasion, is the choice of a photographer helper not to help. And I know you have some opinions uh, about that. And I think it's one of those circumstances you don't know what you would do unless you're presented with it. But I'm curious to hear what your sort of take on that and if there is a particular story that you can provide us that, that tells a story of when you chose to help and why. I, I do believe that if you can. And, and it's never been a case where I couldn't photograph if I helped. 
except for once. You know, I think you can do both. One time in the West Bank, I was with a family, and I had my camera with me, and a, a fight broke out between Israelis and Palestinians in the marketplace of a Palestinian town. And my only thought was to get those kids out of danger. I did not take a picture. That's one case where I took all of my training in conflict photography to help those kids and get them out of there. So they were the children of friends of mine. But then there was another case, for example, in the Abkhazian War in Georgia, where I was working with the Georgian soldiers, and it was a civil war. And there were all these trapped civilians. And because most of them were, they didn't have foreign passports, the Georgian soldiers were not letting them out. This was a horrible thing. One family I was able to get out because the father had a Syrian passport. And he said, please, please help me. And I did. And I got him on a boat and got him out. And he said, God bless America. And I said to him, well, you know, Syria was very good to Armenian refugees during the genocide. I mean, it was just a nice moment that I was able to do something. But, you know, you always feel bad because you can leave and they can't. And you feel like, or I still think about that situation. I think, what about all those other people? And actually, you guys have that photo of that scene on the screen there in the, you know, running gallery. In this exhibit, you're in, in really good company. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a legacy of work that's been happening ever since anyone could put a camera, put a camera down mm-hmm. and make a photograph. When you look at the other people's work, I mean, you, you, you regularly have a chance to see other people's work on the yeah. computer screen or when you get sure. together with other photographers. But when you see them on a, on a gallery wall and you see not only your work, but all these other photographers mm-hmm. documenting sometimes very painful events. What perspective do you get of your own work and your own role in this when you get to see all this body of work in in a place like this? Well, I'm just so honored to be part of it, and I really feel that this this show really takes war photography to another level in itself by combining these images and the kinds of images, which are sometimes incredibly unexpected, that... I hope that people will really learn. And just because these events have already happened, there are still wars and there are still conflicts, and and this is the human condition. Therefore, it's classic, this show, and it's incredibly important for especially young people to understand and to see what's happening in the world. Well, my final question is what I ask each of my guests. And I asked them to recommend another photographer, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, the photographer who really influenced me a lot as a young photographer is Susan Micellis, Mm. whose work I love. You know, I went to the same college that she did, and then I ended up working for her. And, you know, I really loved her work, and still do. She would be one, but there are a lot. Oh, I'm good. There are a lot. I mean, I, I inherited a friendship with Robert Frank from my father, who actually loft sat for Robert Frank when he shot the Americans. Oh, really? Yeah, they were friends, and my father ended up editing a couple of his films. And 
he obviously had an enormous influence as well. Well, where can people go to find more about you and, and your work? My website, which is www.alexandraavakian.com. Alexandra, it was a real pleasure to, to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame.